When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. It is the worst football I've ever seen. I'm coming back to England, man, and I'm keeping my titles. I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. That that was a really important moment in winning the bid as well. Yeah, it just puts you on the spot. Like you just kind of done there with me. <laughs> At least you joined in. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. Last enough from me, I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a professional footballer. He played for the best team in the world, Wolverhampton Wanderers, and is now a football pundit. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Murray. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. We like to start our podcasts with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? I'm ready. Fire away. Fire away. Always born ready. Come on. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh, in my phone book, good question. Um, got a few decent names in there. Uh, you ever heard of Stephen Gerrard? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so Stevie G, uh, Robbie Keane, Paul Lintz, Jeff Stellin from Soccer Saturday, is that all good? Magic, Paul yeah. Merson. So uh, a lot of people really from the from the football world. I um, don't think I've got any celebs outside of that's <laughs> not football. I've met some, but I haven't. Yeah, so I'd say... They're my, they're my big awesome. dogs, Jolie and Lescott, people like that, yeah. They're, they're, they're my big guns. If you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? Oh, that is a good question again. Uh, so loads of sports stars would always love to be a magician, a, magi- a, mu- a musician, sorry, if they could, or an actor, something like that. So often the, the actors and the musicians say we'd love to be a sports star and vice versa so look he's a little bit older than me but my favourite actor of all time is Denzel Washington so I think he's he's a cool cool cat so I like Denzel Washington or if it was a, a musician it would have to be Drake imagine just selling out a stadium everyone rocking <laughs> yeah. or walking into clubs and people you know to your tunes so uh, yeah be either of those would be would be uh, people I'd love to trade places if for one day if you could go back to one day in your life, what day would it be? Oh, some special, special moments. It's hard to narrow it down to one. Uh, I think if you said a sporting event, yeah. it has to be the playoff final. 
I love the playoff final, 2003. Been at Wolves since the age of nine. We, in my time, the club never played in the Premier League. So to be part of that team with those mates and all the lads that we came through with the youth team and some top, top players and knowing what it meant to the fans. So that day in 2003, Millennium Stadium, uh, that would be my sporting event to the playoff final. That, that was amazing. I'd love to relive that moment. And then in on my personal life, I think the day I've got four children. So the days that they were born, you can't separate the one, but <laughs> I'd get in trouble for that. But um, that that's a magic, magic moment as well when you when you're becoming a when you're a dad and you hold your, your little baby for the for the first time. So there's some special, special moments, but I'd say those those would be the ones that I would yeah, love to love to relive if you like. Um, thank you for us, uh, answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. Okay. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Yeah, ever since I can remember, I, want, I wanted to be a be a footballer. Um, my background's probably a little different to most. So I, I was adopted from birth. So uh, my, both my parents are white that, that adopted me. Um, so my ethnicity is half English, half Nigerian. Uh, they also adopted another lad, uh, 12, uh, 14 months older than me. And his biological dad was from Barbados. His biological mum was English. So special, special people, but uh, academic people. Um, not mad, mad into sport, but I've always loved sport. Always. And they said from wherever they can remember, I always kicked a ball about, but played every sport I could. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so always play football, always play football. Played in goal for my Cubs. The reason I had to go and goal was because I was a big little brother. If I wanted to join in with my with my brother's mates, I had to go and goal because no one wants to go and goal, do they? <laughs> they all want to play outfield and this and that. And then, um, yeah, so I went in goal, was okay. And then a scout was watching us play and asked me to go to trials at Wolves. This was when I was nine years of age, playing for Litchfield. And um, my coach was a, a was doing a, a like he was an apprentice at, at Wolves at the time, so called Academy Scholars and all that now and he'd ask scouts to come down and watch they liked me and two of the other lads but when they knew my date of birth that I was actually playing a year above myself then that made them even more interested so I joined Wolves at the age of nine always said I wanted to be a professional footballer Everton was actually my team because my stepdad came into my life when I was six um, and he loved Everton whereas my, my dad my adoptive dad wasn't mad into football uh, so I love Neville Southall. He'll be he'll be too young to remember Neville Southall, but he was a hero of mine. Um, but yeah, and just worked my way through from the age of nine. But you always used to say to the teachers, "Oh, what are you going to be when you're older? I'm going to be a footballer." Okay, yeah, but I'm what are you going to be? And so I did. I was lucky that because my parents were academic, I concentrated on my school side. But that was my dream. I always wanted to be a footballer. Worked my way through. 16, so schoolboys, schoolboys, you're always trying to get a new contract. Actually, I wasn't that big. I know when I've walked in there, you're going, oh, I'm six foot five. But Wolves were worried that I wasn't going to be six foot. And because I couldn't look at my parents to say, oh, no, I've got big granddad or big dad or mum or whatever, I didn't know. So, but luckily I came back one uh, one summer and I <laughs> shot up. So I used to eat the fridge, for, you know, <laughs> yeah. feet grew first and I grew and... And all that, and and then you just work through some of first. So you sign like apprenticeship forms, YTS forms at sixteen. Some of first professional forms at seventeen. I was sitting on the bench for Wolves first team at sixteen, 
But um, yeah, so it just worked my way through. But yeah, being a footballer was always, always my dream and my ambition. Welcome to the segment of the podcast where we are looking at the photos of the iconic sporting images. Uh, Tom and Alyssa have a photo of a very historic sporting moment in front of them. And they're going to do their best to explain what they can see in the photo. And then we'll come back at the end of the podcast and give her the answer. Over okay. to you, Tom and Alyssa. This is either American football or rugby. I can't tell the two apart. So. Definitely rugby. So in this rugby moment, there's men in, in white. Uh, by the looks of things, it's England. Um, one of them is getting ready to kick the rugby ball. And another England player in the background has fell over. So what? What colour are the opposition? Their their opposition is in yellow and black. The one that was going to kick the ball has got a number 17, I think that is. Looks like a number 10 to me. Is it 11? 10. Oh, because it looks ruffled. It's It's a number 10, sorry. Yeah. And um, the other player... Um, is trying to get the ball off him by looks when he's running towards him. Yeah, that looks like a tackle in progress. Yeah. Well, then we'll come at the back at the end of the episode and give you the answer. We have listened to a podcast he did a few years with goalkeeper Paul Robinson called Show Racism the Red Card. You talked about growing up and having to deal with people being racist. What was your experience of this and has football done enough to get rid of racism? I think racism is an issue in society. Um, But yeah, I did face racism. And I look back at it now, and I think there's a lot more help and a lot more support. Um, How I dealt with things, and again, might be because I was adopted. So I grew up in a, I said, a very white environment. So all my family were white. Me and my brother were the only two, you know, anyone in our family that, that had, you know, that were, you know, that obviously he were both a mixed race. Um, so it was hard sometimes. You didn't know how to deal with it. Your parents taught you the best way to deal with it and comments to say, but they probably didn't always know how it felt. But obviously very, very good and brave, strong people to, you know, to adopt two, two black children. Um, but yeah, I did it. I received a lot of racism. Some of it was just ignorant. Some of it was, yeah, physical attacks on me just literally for nothing else but my colour um, probably one of the times I talked about in that Paul Robinson podcast was these lads from a few different schools were after me just because of my colour that was it the, the only reason that all the fighting started was because of my colour and I was at primary school so I was a young young kid young kid and it, and it was scary it was scary that you're walking along and then you're singled out no other reason like no other reason I am walking home with all my friends and they want to attack me just because I'm black and it's like well well, that's that's not fair so then when you're a young kid you just want to be with everybody else so it actually makes you think I wish I was white and then I wouldn't I wouldn't get attacked or I wouldn't walk to play football in the playground and the older kids go you can't play why because you're black that's it no other reason but these are my mates I'm I'm, and and he's the best player Okay, can't play. Black, and that and that was it. All the time, I can remember the first game I played, nine years of age, and you can probably feel the emotion because it hurts. And then you had to like just get on with it, and and sort of, you know, if you reacted, you had a chip on your shoulder and all this stuff. And 
if you're fighting because which I would never advocate but sometimes you have no choice it was literally I had some fights that if I didn't fight back I literally just beat me up just because of my colour and these kids are older than me as well so I was at primary school and the secondary school kids would all come and wait for me so I'd had a fight basically someone beat up my mate because it all started in the playground basically I went to play football you can't play because you're black all this stuff my friend had come from inner city Birmingham with lots and lots of black friends he stood up for me had a fight with the boy he beat the boy so then when he was walking home later where he grew up you know in his area all the kids from the estate beat him up because he he basically fought for a black person so then and a bit later I'm walking and they're going to get him again so I've said look well you want me so I'll take the fight for him which I didn't want to do but I had to do I won the fight the kid's older than me and that was it that was like that made my life hell for so long I didn't tell anybody I didn't tell any teachers I didn't tell my parents and they used to send bikes out for me trying to find me and I can still remember this day I'm playing at Shortbus Lane in goal and they've surrounded the pitch so I'm playing and I'm nine, ten years ten, maybe ten definitely not at secondary school I know that for a fact so maybe eleven at the oldest and all these kids from the estate around and they've got all the bikes they've got everything but lucky and I still remember his name is called Ian Townsend so he come and stood by my guy and said man whatever you do do not walk that way they've got everything blocked off every alleyway is blocked off all the kids are there and they're going to get you okay so I was thinking so I was just stood in goal thinking this final whistle's going to go and they're going to get me that's all they want to do they're going to get me did I go and tell my manager Don Astle who's still got a season ticket here now who would love to bits who took me to I didn't tell anyone so I walked miles and miles and miles all the way home to get back and as I said they didn't catch me and then they waited for me after school followed me and I had another fight then because they, they got me and, and eventually my brother went to the, their school and ended up making friends with one of their brothers and it just all got squashed but that was some of the most terrifying times and the only thing was was because of my colour so it was really really difficult and and that's why I would say to anybody now you speak out you don't do it um, but that's why you're sort of passionate about it because you don't want other kids to go through what I went through and, it, and it, it's really really difficult um, but even when I played for England under 21s I played in Italy played in Slovakia monkey chants everywhere but it was totally different to now like then we just used to roll our sleeves up and we'd go and beat them that's all we'd think we'd go and beat you and then don't swap shirts at the end don't whatever we'll go and we'll get on our bus and go home whereas now people walk in one they'd beat things over the tannoy they might stop the game they'd also ask you how you feel but we weren't no one ever asked us how we felt and it was like yeah you've been racially abused yeah you've been called a monkey and this and that you know but you just have to get on with it so yeah, unfortunately, I experienced a lot, but do I think the game has done a lot? Yeah, I do. I think the game's changed. I think I had a black coach here called Terry Connor, and what he went through from in- from fans in England, we didn't really receive. And then now, what we went through as young players, England players of today wouldn't wouldn't it wouldn't be accepted to be stadium bands and be fines. It's a reflection of society, but a hundred percent, there can still be more done, but. 
football, I think, is a very, very good way of, not only for racism, but just for diversity in general, is, is making a real difference. What is your memory of being in the Wolves Academy? In the Wolves Academy is just, I loved it. I loved it. It was it was the best. And you talk about racism and diversity. We had, so Jack Haywood was an owner. So he owned the Bahamas. So we always had like black staff around. We had um, female coaches, Asian coaches, black coaches, just so diverse. Jez Moxie's wife was black. So I never, ever saw, I just always thought, if you're a good player, you got through. And it was so many lads. And we had a really, really strong youth team. So a year above me was Robbie Keane and Lee Naylor. Um, we had Keith Andrews and people like that. Adam Proudlock in my year, we went and played in the first team. Below was Joni Lescott. There's so many of us that were around the first team. So it grew, it developed when we were here. But they they really valued you as a person, not only as a player. And they put values into you. You knew the history of the club and... Why, wherever you go on holiday, you always bump into a Wolves fan because of you know you know about the the teams where there's Billy Wright, Bert Williams, uh, people like that, and the, the Mike Bailey era. So you knew the history of the club. Um, you knew it was a huge club, um, but the aspiration was to make the Premier League, and, and that was it. But they wanted to bring young players through. So yeah, just amazing, amazing times. I loved playing my Sunday league football. I loved playing for Wolves in the academy. And uh, you asked me at the start, any times you could go back, if there was one day here and there, but the actual time of your life, if you know what I mean, is when you're just a young footballer, your body doesn't hurt, you're just desperate to win, you're desperate to play well, you're desperate to express yourself, and there's not any other pressures, it's just going out, and you don't think, oh, you know, we're 1-0 up, if we win this, we go there and blow the final whistle. When you're a kid, you good when that final whistle goes you just want to play 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 so yeah so my Wolves Academy days were just amazing amazing and yeah I'd love to love to relive them for sure um, you made your Wolves debut against Wimbledon in 2002 what are your memories of that oh wow and again every player remembers their debut I'm telling you now if you go and speak to Cristiano Ronaldo or Buffon or whatever, everyone knows when they played their first game. Um, and obviously when you come through, I've been at Wolves since the age of nine, so you want to get a new contract, new contract, then you want to make the, each age group and then you want to get on a bench, but you, your ultimate is to play, is to make your debut. You want to be a first team player. A lot of my friends had experienced it, had done it. So I had a really, really good pre-season. I trained well, I felt good, I was in a good shape, I'd done well the season before. Always a little bit of a dodgy knee, do you know what I mean? But I was okay. And uh, we played who did we played a game and Michael Oakes had got a knock. So he was meant to do a fitness test on the Saturday morning of the you know, the Wimbledon game. But on the Friday, he said played really well in the reserves, done all the stuff. Dave Jones just named the team. And he said, uh, Matty will play in goal. And I was like, Poof. And you just feel and all the lads like look at you. And I'm thinking, all oh, right, I thought Oaks was doing a fitness test tomorrow. So then you've got an amazing excitement. But at the same time, I was I used to get very, very nervous. And I wish I had the coping strategies that I've got now when I was younger. Um, so I thought, okay, right, I'm playing tomorrow. It's my debut. It's Wimbledon away. This is we're a top championship club. 
I need to do this so get off then all the lads are like you know Jolien and all that they've already made their debuts and when it's one of the new lads coming in you're all that little bit nervous so they've done four or five games you know they're okay so you go off you're like yeah ring me stepdad and I rang my dad and I'm playing but my dad was getting married so my dad's like <laughs> I thought he be, so he couldn't come because he's, he's getting married on the Saturday my stepdad was like I'm there um, so yeah, sort a few tickets, your friends come down. But it was a weird one because it was a time when Wimbledon knew that they were going to become AFC, um, sorry, we're going to become MK Dons and move away. So the fans had stopped going as a boycott. So we probably had as many away fans as they did home fans in Big Selhurst Park, you know, at Crystal Palace play. So that's, that was the ground. And about three minutes in, I'm picking the ball out of the net. <laughs> I've already conceded. So I'm thinking, whoa, is this what it's all about? <laughs> you know, I'm all pumped up, wanting to do whatever. I don't think I'd let a goal in in the whole of pre-season. Corner come in, bang. I'm like, wow, here we go. Uh, anyway, we ended up losing the game 3-2. I did okay. Did okay. Then Oaksy was back for one game. And then he got injured and I played the rest of the season and ended up getting promoted. But So you never, ever forget your debut. Love my home debut out here. Lost 1-0 but got man of the match. And again, when you're younger, you sort of like just take it all in. Once you've played a few games, it just becomes like, yeah, this is what we do. <laughs> but but in your first, the first time you play in front of a full Molyneux or away from home and that, and the crowd's up, it's probably uh, see it again. It's just, it's, it, you are doing for me, you said it, for you, it's, you know, you said the biggest club in the world or the best club in the world. When you come through and you love this thing, you do feel like you are doing the best job in the world for a club that you love and the fans love one of their own. So, yeah, amazing, amazing times. But, yeah, we're a bit of sweet, if you know what I mean. I made my debut, but, but we, we lost the game. That was a great season for you both, personally and as a team. The season ended with you winning the playoff final and getting promoted, promoted to, the, uh, to the Premier League. What are your memories of that playoff, of those playoffs? Yeah. Well, I said like I've been at Wolves since age of nine and we kept missing out, kept missing out. So Jack Hayward had put so much money in. We'd lost in the playoffs the year before to Norwich in the semi-finals. I remember times out here when I was a young, you know, probably similar age to you, we'd lost to Bolton, we'd lost to Palace. There's a time we'd finished second in the league, but only one team ended up automatically. It was like everything was against Wolves to go up. So... Once he'd beaten Reading in the playoff semi-finals, I thought, right, we're over that hurdle. We went to down to Cardiff a couple of days before. Again, I was a little bit nervous. Um, big, big game. We had people like Paul Ince, Dennis Irwin, big players. They played for Manchester United. They played for their country. They won the biggest, biggest prizes out there. So you had like a really nice blend of a team, youth and experience. But you play the semi-finals. And it's like about 10 days to the final. You're just like, oh. <laughs> you know, like a kid waiting for Christmas. It's like, yeah. just get the game here. Um, sorting all the tickets. You could see what it meant to the city. We'd had this siege mentality. So we trained at Molyneux every day. We spoke to no press. We'd meet the fans, but that was it. No one, because the year before we'd said a few things that had been used against us. So we thought, no, no one. This is our bubble. This is what we're doing. We sort our tickets. We do the stuff. So we went down a couple of nights before. So I'm nervous. I'm thinking I can't sleep in that so obviously I spoke to Paul Lintz only the other day he's Reading manager now he said oh we knew you were a nervous big man that's why we come to your room so they all come to my room <laughs> so they got Paul Lintz Nathan Blake Darren Campbell who's a sprinter Olympic sprinter they all come to the room 
I'm thinking, I just need to sleep. You need to leave me alone. <laughs> they're drinking a little bit of wine. They're chilling, doing another thing. And they're all relaxed. I'm thinking, how are these guys so relaxed? You got Then it was like a £50 million game. You know, It was worth so much to the club to go up. Never into Premier League. Darren Campbell's like, how are you, pal? I'm like, oh, man, it's this game and this and that. If I make a mistake, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, have you just arrived here? Or, you know, or have you got all the tools to be ready to play? I said, well, he said, I train for four years for an Olympics and I've got 100 metres to run. It takes me about 10 seconds. So I do four years' work for 10 seconds. Then I have a few days and then I've got a 20-second race because I've got the 200 metres. If I false start or start badly on that, my four years is gone, done. And I've got to wait another four years. <laughs> he said, right? He said, so, but like you, Go to training, get up in the morning, live, breathe, sport. Your parents made all those sacrifices to get you there. So it's not like you haven't got the tools and been on the journey to be ready for this final tomorrow. But if you sleep well, you eat well, you do all your preparation, you know where the penalties are going and this, this and this, then you're going to give yourself the best chance to succeed. And that's all you can do. And do you know what? If you do have a bad game, let your mum and dad still love you. It's not life or death. You go out there, so be the best you can be. Go and do it. I had the best night's sleep. It was all good. And I went into that final and I remember doing the walk in the morning. You know, you're looking around and you go, I'm glad I'm in this dressing room. We got this. Everyone's on that focus, but in that zone. And you get the bus, and go in, you have your pre-match meal. I like routine. and I love routine. Don't like superstitions, but I like routine. Routine and structure for me is very, very important. And it's the same with a lot of athletes. They like routine, they like structure. But you have to get that balance because your routine can be disrupted on a match day. Does that make sense? So I like to go out at 55 minutes before kickoff. I like to do 10 volleys, 10 half volleys. Do you know what I mean? But if I lost count, I'd rather do one more than one less. <laughs> If I've done so many dives to my right, I like to do the same to my left. I've got all these things. I'll put one boot on before the other. And it's just a routine and a thing that made me get into it, listen to the music and all that stuff. But you have to get not too held up on that because you kept, your coach might be caught in traffic. There might be crowd, crowd congestion. So you do your normal warm-up and then they send you back in for 15 minutes and you've got to go back out. And these are all the things we, we don't like as a sportsman. Does that make sense? But you have to be able to deal with and deal with those tools. So we get to the ground and you come round the corner and it's just red and white shirts everywhere. <laughs> Sheffield's United everywhere. Where's Wolves? And then suddenly you go around the next corner and it's like a sea of gold and black. And you even see like Paul Ince and Dennis Irving going, okay. And they've played for, you know, Manchester United, Liverpool, Inter Milan. Ince's played the World Cups, everything. But they're like, okay, okay. And you just looked at it as a lads and thought, we we've got to do it today and then you do your warm up do your stuff and got some nice early touches 3-0 up at half time can't beat that half time few of us thought as young lads we were up and the senior boys and know we started the second half well we just bore it killed the game get promoted and then they got a penalty right at the start of the second half and again you look back at it and you go it's great I practised worked on penalties because Michael Brown had taken them all season we thought we might face him in a penalty shootout so I just followed that routine of what I was going to do in the penalty and 
showed him a little bit more to my left and there's nothing better honestly when you're in goal <laughs> and you see that penalty and you think I've got you all day and yeah save the penalty so it was really nice so to to see what it meant to the Wolves fans to play with so many lads that you've been on that journey with from a young young time uh, you know from a young age a long time and to know that I was part of the team that had the first time in the Premier League was awesome so look I had a lot of injuries lots of Fits I'd love to change from my time at Wolves, but for a debut season, you don't get much better than that. And uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. Um, is getting promoted via the playoffs the best way to go up? I think. So I've been involved with squads that have gone up automatically. So I think that if you, on one way as a player, if you go up automatically, you get more time off. You can rest up. You know where you are, and 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 for the club as well, they they know. So for example, who's just gone up automatically now? Bournemouth and Fulham. So they already knew once they were automatically done, they can start saying to signings, "I want you, I want you, I want you." Whereas Huddersfield and Nottingham Forest are going, "If we go up, I want you. If we don't, I can't take you." Do you know what I mean? So you're going to be behind the queue. You're lowering the queue on some of the, the number one targets, if you like, because maybe Fulham and Forest want the same person. And Fulham go, we can do it now, we can do it now. Well, if you don't give us an answer today, we're going to take our second target. And Forest are going, come on, just wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Does that make sense? So from a club's point of view, you want to go up automatically. But for an actual day, oh, it's amazing. If you go up, but it's nothing worse when you lose in the playoffs and you've done all those games, stayed behind longer than everyone else, and then you're just back in the championship. It's like, come on, man. But but <laughs> but when you go up through the playoffs, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a good day. Uh, I want to take you back to the 11th of March, 2007, Wolves against West Brom. You won the game one 0 uh, thanks to a goal from a former guest on on our podcast Jay Boffroy you have talked about this being the best game you've ever played in why was this game so special? I think it was special for a number of reasons um, so in, in that summer we lost a lot of our big hitters so Paul Lynch Johnny Lescott Kenny Miller we nailed a few games in so we lost Mark Kennedy so many big names had gone and it was like a a new identity to Wolves so instead of buying the big name players and doing that way we, we were bringing the wage bill down everyone tipped us for relegation that season Mick McCarthy came in a few games before Glenn Hodland left so there was so much transition so we worked our way through and I said to you before I've been at Wolves since the age of nine we always used to lose to the Albion always <laughs> even when we were the better so called bigger club and then we always lost to them and when you lose to the Albion it's the worst it's the worst it's horrendous Okay, you have all that build-up for Derby Day. So as a young player growing up, I always wanted to play in the Black Country Derby. I've been on the bench and been in squads, but I hadn't played. First two games, we got absolute lesson. It was men against boys. They beat us 3-0 at the Hawthorns. And I thought, I didn't turn up. Then they came and beat us in the FA Cup. And again, I thought, I'm a big man here. 25 years of age, 26 years of age. I'm one of the main boys in this dressing room. And both times... I've not performed. We played out on Molyneux in the FA Cup and they, the Albion fans took all that end. So they moved our hardcore season ticket holders 
and they sold you seats for a pint and a pie and all this stuff and all this stuff's going up and they left Tesco carrier bags all on the seats that were Albion fans because Wolves fans sing a song about the blue and white stripes for the Tesco carrier bags and they were all doing the easy clap easy <laughs> easy and I'm walking off thinking we've just been absolutely humiliated so I went into that game I've never been so focused in my life I was like no chance am I getting beaten today I had the best week's training and also it meant that we were on a good run if we won that game we actually went above them in the playoff spots so you always felt getting a win consolidate our place in the playoffs and also let's give these fans something proud to, to play for so it was one of my best games because I felt I made saves just felt on point kept a clean sheet and it was nice to, to say to a few of those fans and when you grow up you know I live around Litchfield way I was in Sutton Coldfield then I knew a lot of Albion fans and I knew a lot of them would be I think they were along the side of the pitch <laughs> so I'm thinking yeah man okay you've been giving me a bit on the school run the last two times <laughs> suddenly they're like dodging and hiding behind bushes so yeah 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 so that, that's why it just meant so much and uh, I just loved that game loved it and then when Jay Boffoy scored that goal there's some famous commentary from Tom Ross who does a lot of the radio and he said oh, I think the biggest cheer for Jay coming on is from the Albion band like because saying he's not that even though we knew what a good player he was and a minute later he smashes one in the bottom corner and it, oh, trust me when you are down on that pitch and the goal goes in it, the place erupts and the noise is yeah, it's awesome it's awesome out of Westbourne Aston Villa Birmingham and Shrewsbury who are Wolves biggest rivals and why has to be the Albion yeah I think that Shrewsbury they probably Shrewsbury and Warsaw don't like us so much but I don't think we see them as much as a rival and you actually I always want them to do well because they're local and I'd like them to do well and never really been in we had a little few games when Warsaw were in the championship and when playing against Warsaw but don't really Warsaw and Shrewsbury would be like pre-season friendlies for me Villa always see themselves as the biggest club and they won the European Cup and they talk about that and all Villa fans love to give you stick and they always felt that they were the biggest club in the Midlands but again we finished above Wolves uh, we finished above Villa so that's nice and we, we've we beaten them quite a lot recently so that's nice just because of how much the, the you know the bit of a change in the guard if you like but I think under Steven Gerrard and the ownership they've got they're going to be right back at it but it has to definitely Albion. Albion is the one that whenever you, <coughs> sorry, when you join Wolves and when you're in the system, you know Albion are the ones that that you know when you got to kick off it. The road just shut three hours before. You have to get in early. You know what it means to the fans. You know the build up to the week. As I say, you have to do loads of interviews and and you can just tell what it means to the fans and any of the players, especially now you have more foreign players. Once they walk out for the warm up. If they didn't know what it meant to the fans, they soon know. And you saw what happened, didn't you? With the, even with the 23s playing, like we sold out our allocation. So, hundred percent, as a Wolves man, the Albion are the ones we have to beat. You're number ten, Tom. Okay. You have played with some great players at Wolves, such as Paul Ince, Dennis Irwin, Les Scott, David, uh, Dave Edwards, and more. Is there a certain play that stands out as being the best uh, you have played on with and why? Like all amazing players have had amazing careers for different reasons. Um, 
but the one that I played the most games with that I felt affected the games in a way would be Jolene. I just think Jolene Lescott was an amazing person, amazing pro. They all were great people. But I just, Jolene was the best he could be every single day. And uh, the fact he had the injuries he did at such a young age but still went on to achieve what he did. He studied the opposition and took real pride. So if he's playing against someone who's quicker than him, like Theo Walcott, and you had to play him. If he was someone strong like Jason Roberts or Andy Johnson or Bobby Zimbabwe, I don't know, whoever he played against, he just loved it. And that's why he played for England, won the Premier League, won the FA Cup. So all amazing people, all amazing pros. But I think Jolien was the one that, as I say, had the biggest impact. And every year I played with him, he was player of the season, you know, fans player, players player. Uh, all the opposition feared him, so... Yeah, Jolly and Lescott. After 2003, you only played five games for Wolves because of your injuries. How frustrating was it to have so many injuries in your career? Yeah, so after 2003, I went five games in a few seasons and then I had another season where I played 40-odd, nearly 50 games under Mick, but then broke my shoulder again before the playoff semi-finals and that is the hardest bit. So if we could go back in time and know that how to manage my body and not have those injuries. So that, that's a bit as a... If you lose form or you're not working hard, you can do something about it. When you don't trust your body and your body breaks down, it's not robust enough then. And you're listening to what everyone tells you. You don't drink, you go, stay in. And you see other lads who aren't taking it seriously, but they play week in, week out. Then what might have been is probably the hardest bit. Very, very honoured to have played for such an amazing club and experience what I have and played with players that have but the injury bit is the hardest bit to deal with and I had to do a lot of work with psychologists over that and probably looking back at it again if I was playing now and I went through that there'd probably be more support and more realisation of what, what I was going through but yeah that, that's a bit that you know you walk down the playoff steps you've just been promoted in 2003 what does it feel like to be a Premier League goalkeeper that's what you do you're on holiday with Robbie Keane and you're looking going when do we play Tottenham? I'm going to play against you and you're thinking when well, I'm going to Old Trafford and Chelsea and Anfield. All the things as a kid you want to do and then bang, another injury and another injury. And yeah, you only get one career so to have that taken away is is difficult but it's life. Life isn't fair. Mentally, it must have been very difficult to deal with so many injuries. How did you manage to cope with it mentally? Yeah, I did do work with psychologists and that, but probably look back now, as I said, maybe just could have coped with it better. Uh, used to try and work really, really hard, so going to the gym and there used to be pictures of me up in here and I didn't realise how big I'd got. So because I wanted to feel like I was working, but it wasn't conducive to being a footballer. So, you know, at the playoff final was 98 kg. I'd come back from injury and I'd be like 105, 106 kg of just pure muscle. People, I'd be on holiday, people think I was a boxer. Look at that big. Go out with the rugby lads. I was bigger than them. My mate played for Bradford Bulls. I used to go massive and I could, and it was like an addiction. You know what I mean? I had to feel like I was working and doing something. So I definitely would do different work in the gym. Uh, and yeah, and, and I look back at it now, and there were times when I didn't want to get out of bed or I didn't want to go in or I didn't want to speak to friends and probably was a bit depressed because it's again and again and again and I'm scared of things. But I had a really good family around me. The club were always good. And my little kids, man. My little kids just kept me going and yeah lots of cuddles from my little princesses and they didn't care because it's it's part of your identity to be a footballer when you haven't got something to look forward to on a Saturday then you can 
end up, you know, you still have a lot of time. You have the money, you have the time, but you don't have that focus and that discipline. So it can be trouble sometimes. Uh, and then you get embarrassed as well because you want to be, yeah, you're a, you know, you're a professional goalkeeper and you played on a Saturday against Albion or this and that. But instead it's, oh, you're injured, you're injured, you're injured. And that's not a nice tag to have. So, yeah, some difficult times for sure. A boy to know Tom from? Uh, the 2006 to um, 2007 season for you was a great season. You won uh, a number of awards, such as goalkeeper in the Championship Team of the Year, Fans Player of the Year, and Wolves Player of the Year. What do you think this year was so good for you? I think that it was, on a personal note, it was brilliant until I broke my shoulder <laughs> for the playoff semi final. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And I think that. I was coming into the age where I knew how much I loved football and when you've had it taken away from you for so long you don't take it for granted you're a little bit more mature because you've got kids and I don't know you just grow up a little bit and you get more of a better of a mentality I was one of the older ones in the dressing room even though I was only 25, 26 because of all the change and Mick McCarthy was just amazing Just you know you have certain people in your life that just bring the best out of you so, yeah, it was just it just felt amazing. It was just on a roll, on a roll. I was managing my body well, doing all that stuff. And, yeah, just is in a zone. And I just think it was all the stuff I'd learned along the way, how to train, how to manage my body, how to train to play, not play to train. So when to get the loads right, um, doing my gym right, doing stuff with psychologists, all that stuff. So, yeah, and just, just felt in a really, really good position. And just every week, I just walked out and thought, yeah, man. And then so it's nice when you get recognised those awards, but missing out on the playoffs was a, was a killer. And, and I'm obviously didn't get promoted, but it's a lot of positives that season. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technal Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a Grade 2 star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College Discover Bright Futures Sadly that season didn't end bad for you as you broke your shoulder in training that day before you played off semi-final against Westbourne Again this must have been so hard for you Yeah so if I had a crystal ball I just wouldn't come for that cross (laughs) So it was literally I trained as I played 
and he got a massive game. We just beat, we talked about beating them 1 0, all these awards, player of the season, team of the season, Golden Glove, everything. I'm like thinking, yeah, man, let's have it. Semi final, let's, I want, I want to step out there. I felt like I could be the man. And uh, Mick just said, defend this corner, then you can go into this little small side of the game if you want to, which I'd have just walked in from, I wouldn't even have done. I thought, right, I'll just come catch the cross. And then it's done. We can, I can walk in, I'll get ready for the game tomorrow. Cool. And I came and I took, took the cross and 16 stone coming towards a young lad and thought, I don't fancy this. He made it back like that. Caught the ball, flipped up, bang, spiralled down on my shoulder. I thought, Ooh, wow, that hurt. So I just dropped the ball and said, Gaffer, I'm going in. And I thought, I'm struggling here. Just like it's a mad feeling through you. And it's, he called you humorous. So where the top of you, and I'd never, I'd had a stretch fracture on my foot, but I'd never broken a bone. Like all the impacts I've had, everything I know that injury, I've never broken a bone. But I say, apart from a stress fracture, and I just walked in, I went to the doc, I was like, Doc, I feel sick. This pain is just boom, boom, boom. So it sent me straight into Birmingham to see a leading shoulder specialist, scanned it, and he went, You've, you've cracked your bone. I'm like, Okay, so if we inject it <laughs> and we take the pain away, will I be alright? Because I just feel it's the pain. Complain of a broken arm, but just need to get rid of the pain. It's only a crack. It's not gonna. He was like, no, no, no. You're 25, 26. You've got to get through one game. Then you got to get through the second leg. Then you got to get through a final. Since you're 25, 26, how can you with a broken arm? You can't even move it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even do that. I couldn't do that. How can you do it? You know. He said, no. Because if you land again, your whole shoulders is gonna go. I can't with my medical thing. So we made the agreement that I wouldn't play. I had to go in a sling. But we weren't going to tell Wayne Hennessy because he was only 19 years of age and his <laughs> debut for Wolves was going to be in the playoff semi-finals <laughs> <laughs> out there against West Brom. So we just said, I just rang Wayne. I said, yes. Be, I said, be ready, big man. Shoulder, I'll get through it. But just, just in case. He was like, okay. So he had a really, really good night's sleep and then I rocked up in the morning and I said, Oi. All the best big men. Don't do your thing. I'm out. I'm done. And that was it. And Hennessy went on to do the had the career he did. And obviously we lost in the semi-finals. And I worked really hard all summer on holiday. Got fit. Did my cruciate about a week before the season started. And Hennessy went and played every game. And again, that was training over training. One more cross. Boom. Landing back in the net. Cruciate gone. I did my cruciate. I always remember I did my cruise ship, my agent rang me the next day. How are you, big man? A really good season, everyone's talking about you. Yeah, I think we've got a couple of bids coming in from the Premier League. Wolves are looking for this and that. I said, yeah, I did my cruise ship yesterday. He said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my cruise ship yesterday, I've just got the results. I was like, wow. So, it's life. Not that I would have wanted to leave Wolves, but at the same time, these things happen. So, you are where you are, but it certainly didn't have much luck when it came to came to injuries yeah you're speaking about um, your broken shoulder at the moment I've got a fractured ankle oh wow okay. yeah. yeah I've been in one of those boots yeah. before how are you finding that oh well it's pretty hard to walk on obviously yeah. um, you got crutches of you or no, no? Okay. Um, so how did you do that then well let's just say oh, I hit something pretty hard oh okay <laughs> yeah it just and it broke yeah. yeah and then it's all that like why did I do that yeah. You know what I mean? So if you could yeah. literally just wind the clock back just a few seconds before you did that and not do it, it's the same. So I, when I had the stress rupture of the foot, 
So I had to sleep in my one of them. I had to sleep in it. So I used to put like some, um, you know, like a bin bag around it, whatever, so it didn't mess with the sheets. But again, when you had an injury, you didn't mind doing your left leg because you could drive your automatic. <laughs> but when you had a right leg injury, it was like, oh, mate, that's a, yeah, survived my missus driving for six weeks and all that sort of stuff and that lack of independence. But I just hated that, you know, not even able to go and get a drink or anything, you know, when you're on crutches. But so I feel you, I feel your pain. Yeah. You feel, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why do you think you did get injured so much? Because you do not hear of goalkeepers getting so many injuries where you just look unlucky. Yeah, I was unlucky. Uh, certain keepers, it's, it's, it's strange that lads around my generation did. So Stuart Taylor had a stress fracture his back. Rob Green had a stress fracture his back and got managed in certain ways and then had no problems. Um, Chris Kirkland had injuries. Bywater did his wrist. So we were all from a similar age, but Ben Foster did his cruciate a couple of times and he had a stress fracture his navicular, but he was able to come back. I think some of it with me was I grew very, very quickly. So I left school at 16, just turned 16, and I was six foot three and 86 kilos. Within no time, I'm six foot five, six foot six and 98 kilos. I never, ever got a day off. So I can remember one of my days was in in the morning, train with the first team. Stay behind in the afternoon, train with the under-18s. Quick shower, bit of food, and I was on the bench for the first team. That's ludicrous. I'm 16 years of age. Like, where? why am I getting no sleep? And it was like every day, because people needed keepers. And my mentality was, I've got to work harder, I've got to work harder, I've got to work harder. So, because I was following so many programmes... And everyone you use, where now they would look at the load and go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're growing like this. You see, I've got long levers, long arms, long legs, all that stuff. And also when they rehab you now, they make sure you hit all different scores and tests. And that's what it was. So it felt like it just damaged all different bits of my body, compensating for other bits because I'm a big, powerful boy. Getting no rest, doing the wrong stuff in the gym. And unfortunately, a physio that was really, really good I met too late in my career so he got some games out of me but I would say it was mismanagement when I was young which is why because my voice didn't break till I was 15 so I was late uh, my maturation was late but you'd all do the same stuff but I'd actually be even though I was just 16 I'd be doing the same work in the gym as men it's not right so so that's that's why I think I had the injuries and then just rushing back and, and sometimes just bad luck as well um, I want to show you a few messages that we've received from some of your former teammates. Okay. So, um, go and contact a few former teammates of yours, and I asked them to explain, describe you in three words. <laughs> so, stop. Jay Bothwood. Uh, saw Jay the other day doing this guy. So, great keeper, amazing keeper, great person, and lucky due to injuries. And he said he can't think of any stories right now, but I bet he has loads about me. Overall, love Matt. He's a top man. <laughs> Yeah, so I saw Jay the other day doing Sky. Really, really good guy. Some good goals. Lovely left foot. So he loved scoring past me because he knew <laughs> I hated letting goals in. So I always remember the goal he scored against the Albion and the one he scored live on Sky away at Leeds was just, oh, unbelievable strike. Right in the last minute we won at Ellen Road. That was good. Remember when he scored a goal, came on a sub, scored, and he ran past Mick McCarthy a couple of years to say sort of like, how you leave me out next thing his number's up and he got some back <laughs> off so it's like come on guys 
Rafi and this like squeaky voice. But James, James, good guy, um, really, really good player. But I, yeah, I always remember one goal he scored past me in training, and we were just <laughs> laughing his head off because it was an unbelievable goal. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. He'd always sit in the treatment in the middle of the dressing room as well, holding court. So yeah, Jay was a real character, good player, good lad, and. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if you ask Jay the question, does he feel that he fully fulfilled his career with all the ability he had? Well, we spoke to him a few months ago on the podcast, and yeah, he, he said no because yeah. I know he. Um, he obviously was with Arsenal, wasn't he? And yeah, he had a bit of fallout with the youth, and went to Coventry. Um, so yeah, I think I'm a Cardiff fan, so I've watched Jay, Jay course, Cardiff, yeah. and a Cardiff him and Chopper were just brilliant. Awesome, yeah. But yeah, I think he said he regretted his kind of the way he left Arsenal and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, because he had all the ability in the world. But okay, yeah, Jay Buffer, a good guy. So Paul Robinson, yeah. So Paul said Matt is one of life's good guys. He really is. He's a gentle giant who was extremely unlucky with injuries. He could have had a career at a higher level for much longer. Yeah, so I remember playing against Robbo when he was at Leeds, and he actually played in the second half, played up front for with Alan Smith for okay. Leeds when we were schoolboys. <laughs> Because he was, his kicking was amazing. He shot from the centre circle, and no one at that age could kick a ball that far. And he he could, obviously, he had a fantastic career. Knew him well through <coughs> Robbie Keane when he was at Tottenham. Obviously, he's a year probably only a year older than me, Robbo. So again, when there's young lads that you know that are playing, you watch them. But yeah, it's kind of Robbo because I'd love to have been able to stay fit, and maybe if I'd have got in the Premier League or kept doing well, could have had a little fight with him for that England <laughs> spot. That would have been yeah. that would have been nice. This is what I'm looking forward to. Matt Jarvis. Uh, Ask him what we did when I first joined Wolves while we were injured. Spartan, big friendly giant. <laughs> so again, everyone's saying big friendly giant. So you can see there's a lot of gym gym time. And uh, yeah, so have you ever seen the film 300? I have. Yeah. yeah. And they're all ripped with their six packs yeah. and all this stuff. So we all went and watched it and decided that we wanted to be Spartans so yeah she went online you could do Spartan training how you'd get yourself ripped and do all the stuff so we used to take protein and we used to go in the gym and we would hit the gym hard and then uh, yeah he used to be very very immature and we got more and more ripped and definitions so then one day we uh, we put just our slips on like the Spartans made little cloaks Grab weights bar as a spear and sit up Max's shield, sit up Max's shields and just raided the treatment room. Sparta! And all went running in thinking we were uh, yeah, thinking we were Spartans. <laughs> very, very silly. And then one time when the lads were all cute in the tunnel ready to go out, Rob Edwards, who is now Watford manager, yeah, yeah from Forest Green, he was one of the Spartans. <laughs> and as they're all lined up in the tunnel, he just shouted from behind one of the doors, for Sparta! Spartans, what are we? And then we were all going, who, who, who? You can see the opposition, we're like, what is this coming out of the tunnel? So we're very immature. We didn't have to grow up as footballers, but yeah, Spartan training, never ever. And we actually got banned from the gym because we, we got that big. Yeah, we got that big and that ripped. Yeah, we got banned from the gym so yeah Java good guy man our last one so former Wolves manager Dave Jones oh, yeah. who says big big and big <laughs> the first time I saw him he was fantastic throwing for goalkeeper and then we saw his chicken legs 
He'd worked so hard in the gym and was recovering from injuries but forgot to work on his legs. <laughs> Great lad and could have been a top goalkeeper but for injuries. I had to stop my daughters from marrying him. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we always have a bit of banter. So, there's a few things. So he came in and Dave was quite hard with us and that, but it's because he saw what he believed in, Jolie and Lescott, Lee Nail and myself, some young players that could go on and do well so it was hard that was his way he wanted a reaction from you I had been injured a lot but one is genetics I look at an upper body weight and I can put size on my legs are just skinny skinny that's it <laughs> but also that was it I was in the gym working hard but for me when you're a young kid 16, 17 how am I meant to know yeah. do you know what I mean how am I meant to know what to do so if I get getting told oh I'm dealing with so and so and so so you go off and do your time it's human nature to do what you're good at, what you like. And also, if you had a knee operation, it hurts. So actually, he he pulled me in and said, like, you need to get fit. So I said, well, I'm doing what they tell me to do. He's telling me to take painkillers and ice my knee, and I, I can't even straighten my legs. Still can't straighten his knee now. So I said, look, you let me go away and get fit, and let's see what happens. And I went away, got fit somewhere else. I was on the contract, and... He gave me a gave him a debut to play a young goalkeeper in a club of this size. He's brave, but yeah, there was always banter because my my partner at the time was called Chloe. His daughter's called Chloe. So there was this rumor that I was engaged to a Chloe, <laughs> and everyone decided I was engaged to a man's daughter. I'm thinking, wow, he doesn't like me as it is. <laughs> Certainly, if I date his daughter, I'm going to get beaten up even more. So and all this stuff. So yeah, there's, there's always that sort of banter. But he's look, he's. Dave was a, say, a really good manager. He was the first manager to take us up. He could deal with a lot of big egos. He set us up. He got us promoted within two years. Obviously, he's blessed with his lovely family. And uh, yeah, so that so that's where that rumour came from, <laughs> that I was engaged to Dave Jones' daughter because <laughs> I went out with McClory. That was it. People say goalkeepers are a strange breed and you have to be a certain sort of person to be a goalkeeper. Would you agree with this? See, I think I'm perfectly good. <laughs> right. But all my teammates would probably say, yeah, I'm a little bit different. Um, I think it's, we often go and train on ourselves, by ourselves. Everyone knows how to play in goal and tells you what to do, where actually it's a specialised position. People accuse us of ruining football. We're not footballers who do all the stuff, but the minute they haven't got a goalkeeper, that's probably why I never missed Dave's training when I was young, because everyone wanted a goalkeeper for their session. You don't want to shoot in an empty net. You don't want small-sided games with no goals in or do shooting drills with no goals. Goalkeeper, sorry. So that's why. And then you stand there on your own and you can have the best game for 89, 90 minutes and then you make that one mistake. <clears throat> Whereas a striker, you can have the worst game in the world and score that one goal. And everyone talks about the one goal. Whereas a goalkeeper, you can be amazing all season or whatever and you let that bad goal in that cost you. And that that's the precious, but you don't have to run around in goal, do you? So <laughs> that, that, that's all good. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's probably where that comes from. But I think, I think I'm the one. <laughs> um, we have spoken to a number of goalkeepers on this podcast, such as Joe Hart, Paul Robinson and yourself. Can you talk to us about how the role of a goalkeeper is changing as they are becoming more like outfield players these days? Yeah, it's evolving all the time. Definitely, definitely the way. So when I actually first started playing in goal, you could still pick up a back pass. Okay. And now the rule is you when you take a goal kick, you can actually play it to your own player inside the box. So the rule's changing all the time. 
Everyone wants possession-paced football, which starts with the goalkeeper. So when you work on the continent, so you, in Europe, the formation is 1-4-4-2, 1-3-5-2. The goalkeeper is seen as an outfield player, where in England we say, play 4-4-2 today, play 4-3-3 today. Like The goalkeeper is not part of the team. So now the, the support positions, it's more what you have to do with with the balls that are in possession. But also teams are playing with a lot higher lines now, so you have to protect the space um, with, you know, with the with balls over the top. Obviously you're expected to be able to handle a ball and join in outfield and be left footed, right footed, like two foot players. Um, different build as well, as I say, Dave Jones liked me because I was big and, and bulky and come and take crosses. You don't have to do that as much now, especially at the higher levels where they want longer, leaner, quicker goalkeepers. So probably me and Robbo would have struggled in this generation. Whereas Joe Hart, obviously still playing at Celtic, he's very powerful in his quads, his glutes, but a very lean and strong upper body. So, and then the men, but the mentality side is still the same, and you are still a goalkeeper. That is the bit that winds me up. You have to keep the ball out the net, and there's still too much emphasis. Oh, he's so good with his feet. Save the ball. <laughs> Come and catch across and save the ball. And I don't care. It doesn't have to be a perfect. Just keep the ball out the net. And I think a little bit of that's gone away. And that's why the top, top boys are brilliant in possession. But they make the saves. So Edison, Allison, Pope's an amazing goalkeeper. So that bit will never, ever change. And you're always to blame. That bit's never changed. <laughs> what was your skills like with the football with the football, do you think you could be a goalkeeper in today's game and play for someone like Pep and the way you, the way he wants to a goalkeeper to play? So, I think that if I'd have grown up doing it, then yeah, I think so, because I'd have practiced from a young, young age. But if you plant goalkeeper now from my sort of time into Pep no <laughs> I get a heart attack watching it I'm like wow when Edison did that one the other day and the Liverpool striker slid in on the line, yeah. yeah and putting a ball, ball on it inviting the press so for me Edison is the most in, elite in possession goalkeeper there is so doing that now how I play no but if I'd have come through as a as a nine eight nine year old doing it to Edison's level no, but could I have been competent? I think so, yeah. I think all the lads of our generation could have been because we'd have been raised in a different way, but certainly not with how we were asked to play to do that. No, it would be, well, very, <laughs> be very alien to us, I would say. Um, is it true you used to have a pen pal from Germany? Yes, <laughs> Torsten. Torsten Zobieski, yeah. And he came over when we played Southampton and we got beat 6-0, so I got Golden Glove. <laughs> That. and he actually messaged me on my birthday the other day so I got golden glove in that season so I've kept a lot of clean sheets but the one game him and his sister Maren came over for yeah got beat 6-0 and I was stood in that goal looking at him thinking what is going on here and <laughs> he stayed at my house I had to take him out for food and I didn't want to go out for food I didn't want to eat anything and for me to be put off my food I'm not happy and uh, yeah so yeah Torsten Sobieski yeah <laughs> Looking back at your career, you had a number of managers at Wolves. Is there a certain manager that stands out for you as being the best? And if so, why? All very, very good managers for different reasons. Um, obviously, said about Dave Jones, first time Wolves got promoted. Um, 
and good with the different egos of the characters, but the one I felt got the best out of me um, and sort of did really well with Wolves in a different way is Mick McCarthy. Yeah. Mm. I think McCarthy's awesome. I think he's human size, brilliant. Obviously, with a small budget, never blamed anyone else, got players in, found players, made them better. Kitely, Jarvis, Fletcher, Edwards, I don't know, loads from lower leagues that went on to become established Premier League players. So, Mick McCarthy, and he kept balls in the Premier League for three years. Let's just be honest, three years in the Premier League is not bad. So, yeah, absolutely awesome. Super Mick, man. Legend. Um, talk to us about your decision to retire. Was it a difficult one or had all those injuries taken their toll on you? Yeah, the injuries have taken their toll. So it's still a really, really difficult when it actually happens. You know it's coming, but it's very daunting. All you've ever done, you leave school at 16. Best wishes, Matt Murray. You're going to eat this day, your day off then, you play then, you do this, you get paid that, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, right, you're not a footballer anymore. So there's a relief when you know you keep breaking down and your body hurts and you're doing stuff. And someone takes it out of your hands, so you haven't actually quit yourself. The specialist goes, you can't do any more. If you want to have a knee replacement by the time you're 36, 37, or you're going to still be a dad and be able to go to the park and do stuff, then I'm saying to you, you've done everything you can, you've given it your all, but for me, you'll never be able to, your body won't handle the rigours of professional sport, but you can still have a decent quality of life. So it's daunting, scary, walls were great, so there's a lot of emotions going on. But then you've got no choice. Face the fear, do it anyway, get out there. What will be, will be. But when, as I said, you have this projection of like, and you assume roles in a family. So like, I was the one, you earn good money, you're a footballer. So when you go out, I pay the bill. Or I pay for the holidays to do this and that. And it's like, maybe that's not there. And when your mum and that just hug you and say, look, we just love you. We don't want any of us, son. We're good for you. But we love you as Matt, the Wolves goalkeeper. We love you as Matt doing Sky Sports. We love you as Matt doing, you know, if you want to come and train to be a teacher, if you want to go and do this and that, we love you. That's it. We don't want any other son. Whereas you have that sort of perception of, I am a professional footballer. I'm this guy in our family. And you know what? If you can't pick up the bill at the end of the thing or whatever, if you can't, but it's just hard when all your mates are still playing for their countries, playing in the Premier League and, you're done in your head you think you're getting at least 35 but at 29 done then made your move into being a pundit after you retired how did that move come about you sort of reap what you sow a little bit so whenever I was a player I'd always see like I'm here now you give your time you do your stuff and you my parents always said you got to remember people on the way up as well on the way down so when you are on the way up and you're playing all the time and Sky Sports want to do that interview or talk sport or do whatever and you take that little bit of time and you wait behind after training, then when opportunities arise and they, you need them, they go, oh, do you want to come inside and do Sky? We always thought you spoke well on Sky or you were nice and you do this and you do that. And that's how it all came about. And Wolves were good. They said, look, you're injured. You can go and do the live game. You can go and do Soccer Saturday, Soccer Special. Slots opened up. And I get, you get nervous and you get a fear. But I've always got this mentality, what's the worst that can happen? Go and do it anyway. So if you do your coaching badge, you like coaching. And by the way, the first time you stand there with that whistle, you've got to take a coaching session. It's like, that. were you the same when you first time take a classroom? You're like, oh, I've done all this training, but actually now I'm in charge. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's nerve-wracking. It's the first time you run out there. It's nerve-wracking. So all these things, but I was just one of them, what's the worst that can happen? 
So I tried Sky, I tried Talk Sport, I did my coaching badge, I did all these different things and transitioned into it. And what am I, 11, 12, 13 years later, still doing Sky Sports and hanging in there with my grey hairs and doing my makeup <laughs> and everything else. But you, if you get paid to play football, the best. But to coach it, do it as a pundit. You should remind me of, of, of makeup. There's a, the video of your soccer hair, isn't it? <laughs> Where they take yes. the nick out of you for look at yourself and jawline chiseled like granite, <laughs> skin nice and hydrated. Yeah, so basically, you have an earpiece in and you have a monitor in front of you. So I'm not live, they're running something else and they're going, so they're going, either you've got some grey fluff or grey hairs, we're not sure. So, but when you look in the TV, if you turn that way, you actually turn that way. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to find it and I'm talking back to my producer through my microphone. But it looks like I'm just looking at it. So someone scroll through that. It was off there. They put the voiceover on. and uh, Yeah. And when it made the Christmas bloopers, because most of the time you get away with it because the lads are playing and training and all your players. But when it was on the Christmas bloopers, my phone blew up. Yeah. Cool. Uh, we played a quick-fire game with the Sky Sports cricket team of Nasser Hussain, uh, Michael Atherton, David Lloyd and Rob Kitty, where we asked them about their Sky Sports mates. So we wanted to do the same with you and the Sky Sports football pundits. We, were, we will ask you a range of questions about your colleagues and you have to give us the answer. No pressure. <laughs> right. Here we go. Go on and fire away. Who would you take on a night out? Cammy, Chris Kamara, he just can talk to anyone, banter, he can go karaoke, he's just like a chameleon, he can adapt to any surroundings, uh, really, really good fun, nicest guy, they're all great, but yeah, I'd have to say Chris Kamara. Um, who would be the last to buy around drinks? <laughs> ah, <laughs> I don't know actually, because before it would have been Paul Walsh, we always used that banner for him. <laughs> So he do a sweet steak, but I haven't, Walsh hasn't done Sky for a bit now. But Walsh, Walsh would have been the one. But apart from that, I would honestly say, actually, everyone fights to get to the bar first. And we we usually go out as a group and then just split the... We run a tab and then split the tab between us. So I, I can honestly say it's more the other way. Everyone's... For, who, who would be last at the bar? Because everyone's always trying to be first, you know, if they are, like Jeff or whatever. Very, very generous people. So I honestly can't really... Embarrass someone with that one. <laughs> Who would you want to travel the world with? Different ways. So if you go with Neil Mellor, you know you're going to be very, very organised and everything's <laughs> going to be on point and you get there and you just have a full itinerary and do it and it'll be organised. <laughs> if you want it to be a bit more haphazard, let's see what happens and let's just go with the flow. Be Paul Merson. Uh, yeah, I can imagine Merce just so many stories cracking you up, recognised by everyone. Really, really good fun. Um, again, they're all interesting characters for different reasons. Clinton Morrison would certainly make it lively as well. Um, but yeah, I'd say for a proper educational one, Neil Mellor, for just a wild one, has to be Magic Man Paul Merson. Um, you ever got into a fight? Who do you want to back you up? Well, I say don't like fighting. Um, 
from Sky Sports. <laughs> probably Graham Souness or someone like that. He's yeah. uh, he's probably a bit older than your generation. Souness in his prime be pretty tough. Um, imagine he'd be able to to handle himself, but. I think out of the whole panel, I'm probably the biggest. <laughs> so yeah, you, you're, yeah. you're what happened. But you know what? I've never had a fight. You know, say I've had a fight as a kid and all that stuff. But on a serious note, as a big man, always <laughs> been able to walk away from it, talk my way out of it. But um, again, because you're all just people, you don't talk about it, do you? Yeah. You're just all nice and chilled. Probably if it was any of my teammates from back in the day, it'd probably be Nathan Blake or uh, Carl Ikemi. But from because Carl does all the jujitsu and Blakey just was quite handy. Um, but all the Sky guys are say we just eat jelly babies, drink coffee, chill. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we never get in a fight, put it that way. Um, you are on the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Who would you want as your phone, phone friend? Definitely not Lee Naylor. <laughs> oh, is this, oh, is this Sky yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, just Sky. I thought his teammates were. Sorry. Ooh, I think you'd have to go Gary Neville, wouldn't you? He seems so clever, so intelligent. I think he's an unbelievable pundit. I love listening to him. So I'd either say David Jones, the anchor. Jeff Stelling seems knowledge up. But if it had to be like a player pundit, then I'm going to say... Gary Neville, he does politics and everything. He's, I don't know, he seems to do everything. Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. How he does it? He's so clever, Gary Neville. So, yeah, Gary Neville. He seems from what people say and from what we see on the TV, like the opposite of what he was as a player. Like yeah. Now he seems very political and he's on every TV show, he does a podcast, he does this and does this. And I wonder if Gary Neville, looking back at it, because he is so articulate, because he is so intelligent, because he is so respected and such a big name, would he think, hmm, had my time again as a player I'd be a great voice because for me I love him as a pundit could listen to him all day him and him and Carragher make yeah. a great team yeah what is your favourite thing about being a pundit yeah I love watching football so I always say this that fans go and watch their team they pay to travel there they pay for their ticket they pay for their food they do all these things emotionally invested Sometimes a team can get slapped 5-0 and it ruins the rest of the week. Whereas we get driven there or cars, you know, provided for us. Great seats, everything. All the stats, you're watching it. If you're in the warmth, if you get food being brought to you, you, you just it's just brilliant. So I just think the fact that you can get into near enough any game and you are, you know, let's be honest, you're getting paid to watch football <laughs> brilliant so it doesn't feel like work because you love your job you also work for unique sports management and support current players is that a role you enjoy and what do you have to do you have to go and find young players uh, and obviously establish players as well try and pitch to them and say look me and my company can help you and add value to you and do the right thing and grow with you and put a plan together and help you in it all ways. So 360 management, so we can help you with social media, your contracts, your transfers, your negotiations. Just try and take every distraction away from you and make sure that you've been the best you can be and maximise it. It might be, I know my weaknesses, I know my strengths, I've been through things as a player, but it'd be someone that I can find to help you and guide the family and work with the family. So 
and but you have to identify talent that you believe in. Uh, so it's hard work. It's competitive. It's it is it, you know it's relentless. It can sometimes go hand in hand because you need to go and watch games and, and see players. But yeah, I'm proud of the company that I'm involved with. There's lots of other really really good agencies out there. And the only bit that hurts is when people say, oh, agents this, agents that. Good agents add really good value. And I'd like to think that a lot of the lads I work with would say, do you know what? I've added to their, helped add to their career and help their families, as I say, and and want to do the right thing by them. So it's, it's so many different facets to being an agent, but I do really, really enjoy it. And again, keeps me football. But playing is the best. Nothing beats playing. It's a selfish thing, but it's, when you're playing, you're fit, you're strong, you're out there every day, you've got nets on the goal, all the ball, you kick, wash, your boots done. Playing in front of a thousand people is the best best job in the world. But if you can coach a player, you know what it's like, you do something with a, yeah. a pupil and then it comes off. Yeah. It's the best feeling. It's an amazing feeling. And when you've sat down with a family and gone, right, we're going to do this, this and this, right, that's your contract. Or we're moving you. I've just moved a boy to Manchester United. 16 years of age. There's another one, 16 years age in Manchester City. You sit down with the family and they're going, we love it where we are, but we feel if we're going to go to the next levels, we need to be this environment, that environment. I think your son's really, really good. Let me make some phone calls. Let's put a plan together. You ring a few people, next thing, right, uh, you're going to be at Old Trafford next week. It's all agreed. <laughs> Clubs are agreed. Personal terms are agreed. Do you want to be a Manchester United player? And you've got messages going, oh my days. My son is now a Manchester United player. Yeah, yeah. And now, getting into the first team is the hardest bit. We've done this bit. So that's a very, very nice feeling when you've played a part in someone getting to where they want to get to. Do you think sometimes, like looking at agents at the, at the top level, at United, City, Madrid, there's this thing with Mbappe and Pogba recently, that agents appear to the public to kind of get too involved and demand huge fees and demand this. Do sometimes in agents make it more difficult at times? No. So I think that they work for the player. So, and sometimes they'll work for, clubs will use agents to work for. And there's so many different jobs that agents do, but it's about knowing the value of your player and getting the most of the player. So the regulations are the regulations, not breaking the law. It's about putting a plan together and maximising things for your client and getting the best thing. And they'll have been on a long, long journey, but to get an Mbappe, a Pogba, a Ronaldo, that's a unicorn. There's not many out there, are there, really? Most agents work with good players. Yeah. There's a lot of difficulty, but they're working for You can't earn off a player to they're 18 years of age. So you'll sign a player in the year of his 16th birthday and go on all that journey and all that stuff, they might leave you, or they might not make it. So it's a lot of hours, a lot of time that go into it. Um, so, of course, there are some super agents who do great, great things, but... The clubs know what they're doing, they're, you know, and if they're prepared to pay it and they're prepared to do it. So I understand why from the outside looking in, but as long as they've not done over Pogba, done over um, Mbappe, as long as all the clubs speak together and there's there's the stuff then, because clubs quite often, if they don't want to play, they'll do things. So yeah. it's a bit of everything. It's just not all having its own way and the clubs having all the power or the players having all the power, but it's a lot more complicated than that, but lots of agents as well will be putting that money that they're earning into other young players coming through, hoping that they become the next generation coming through. So it's all regulated. Everything will be there, what they've earned. 
taxes paid, all the stuff's paid. So I only know how I work. And I I believe that I work for my players with the best integrity. And I'd always say that I wouldn't do anything for them that I wouldn't do for my own son. So that's the best moral I can go with. What are your thoughts on the current Wolves squad and how can they do next season? I think this is probably one of the biggest windows in a long, long time at Wolves. I think Wolves fantastically well. As I said, when I first came to Wolves, it was trying to get into the Premier League or just stay in the Premier League. We're trying to, trying to break top six, top four, and that's difficult. So I think there'll be transition. Martinho, Ruddy's gone. What will Neves do? Jimenez, there's so many players that you're thinking it could be the change. So I'd like us to do our work early. If we're going to sell, try all race, sell him, do all that sort of stuff, get the players out, get the players in. But I do think there probably could be a good five or six players this window. Uh, I think the current squad's brilliant. Done lots and lots of good stuff, but I do feel we need that that transition now. Centre-back, a midfielder, another striker. Um, but it depends who goes out and who comes in. But it's just going to be so difficult to, to just kick on to that next bit. Um, Wolves have been very consistent uh, over recent years and finishing the top 10 most seasons. What do, you, what do they need uh, to break up into the top 16? Uh, top 6, I mean. Top 6, yeah. I just I say now, it's just so difficult because I think Chelsea, uh, sorry, Liverpool and Man City are playing a different sport. They're gone. They're you like to bridge that gap is crazy. I think if the new Chelsea ownership happens quickly, I think they'll they sort of feel like they've had a disappointing season, but the FA Cup lost on penalties. League Cup lost on penalties. Won the Super Cup. Champions League lost to Real Madrid just and finished third in the Premier League. So if they get some additions, yeah. they're probably going to go again. So I just feel, let's see how Ten Hag does. I think Conte's top at Tottenham, so they've got in. So I just feel, that I think Leicester will go again. So I just, I, I just, it takes money to get there. You need that little bit of luck. But as I say, I just hope we've got some really, really good targets and keep players fit. No Europe distractions, but yeah, it's just about recruitment. But it's, as I say, to break into that last bit, so, so hard. And there'll be so many other clubs thinking they're there or thereabouts. But to say that we're an established top 10 club does show you how, how far this club's gone. We would like to play a quick-fire game with you called Wrong Answers Only. We will ask you a number of different questions and you have to give us the wrong answers only. You understand? <laughs> sort of. Go on. What is the best stadium you've played at? Uh, Colchester. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favourite food? Curry. The best thing about Matt Murray is... Legs. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight of your career is losing to Albion. <laughs> the best thing about the Molyneux Stadium is so it's got to be a lie. Uh, the away fans. <laughs> <laughs> Finish the sentence. Matt Murray is. So we're lying. <laughs> Handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Got a great head of hair. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. Um, so we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's question comes from our previous guest, 
who was former England cricket captain Adam Hollyoak, he asks, "Do you have a motto that you live your life by?" Yeah, so I have a few values, as I say. So a saying that we I really, really like that Mick McCarthy sort of brought into us when we were battling to stay in the Premier League was don't accept good over best. So that's something that I I always try. You know what I mean? I always try and give my best. Yeah, it can be good, but no, is it my best? So I'll always be the best I can be. That, that sort of, that's a sort of mantra that I go, that I go by. Uh, and then a big value, as I said, is whether I coached or an agency or whatever I do, never ever make a decision for somebody else's child that you wouldn't want for your own. And I think that's, if I can look a parent in the eye and say, I'm doing it for the best, best intentions. Of course, do I want to make money or do I want to do things? Yeah, but I know that if someone made that decision for my son, I'd be cool with it. Then there are a couple of big, big things that I, I do go by. Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question can be anything you want. I think the about, about routine. So I'd ask them, how much does routine play a part in their life? I think that's a, a lot of sports people like it, like their routine. So, yeah, how much is, and, and what is their routine maybe? I've got. I need a very good, consistent routine as well. Yeah. 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 And how do you feel when it's? I'd, I get unsettled. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's hard, but I have to try and keep it as consistent as possible. Yeah. So and just yeah. control what you can control. What you can control. Yeah. But it's. But it does. It throws you, doesn't it? If, it does, if, yeah. if it's out and it's difficult, because uh, saying there that you know we spoke before, didn't we? That so my next door neighbour. His his son's uh, autistic, so he he doesn't with lights is a big big thing for him. Is that is, is that anything for you guys? He doesn't like bright lights. Mm, yeah, not, uh, it can be yeah for lots of children with autism. Yeah, but. and then he's always talking to me about films. Have you got anything that like you're really really into? Um, for me, like even uh, how many times I watched it, I just never get off Spider Man. Okay. Yeah. You need to meet my son then. <laughs> yeah. He loves Spider Man. He marvelled aft. He loves Spider Man. Hawks is number one, but he'd watch Spider Man every day with you. No problem. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm a big Jaws fan. Jo- um, okay. Qu- wow, that scares the life out. Of me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because like coincidentally on the podcast, we tried to like Carl Gottlieb, and he was like the uh, executive, like writer and producer for it. Um, so it's really good having a chance to talk to him but yeah I'm Jaws mad it's like one of those movies that I don't mind watching over and over again yeah love that movie did that yeah because I was saying as well we had a, I had a player like a teammate of mine and no one knew but he he he's, he's come he said now that uh, you know he's autistic and it was interesting why he clashed with quite a lot of coaches <clears throat> and he's saying looking back at it he may be cause he, uh, you should probably get him on I should yeah. give you his number yeah. Because it'd be really interesting to see why he didn't feel he could say that he had, you know, he had autism, um, and if that played a part, why every single window he moved. And I got a wave of a great lad, but I don't know if he there were certain bits that you know you're going to play left back, and then you get him put here just at the last minute, or you're going to play back three, and yeah. you, I, I don't know. That might be me being ignorant, and that's what I think as well. I do think there's a 
there's an ignorance that we do our coaching badges and we gradually talk about more and more things. So racism now gets covered, didn't used to be. Uh, we do a lot about things you can and can't say with diversity. But again, I've never ever in my coaching badges ever been touched upon yeah. how you would certain things to if you wanted to work with a player because there will be a lot there will be a lot of autism things, autism is a, a hidden disability so so these boys yeah. autistic or everyone else scores autistic you, you wouldn't know no. so I think being autistic you need that structure you need that routine and you're right football doesn't give you structure just doesn't, doesn't give you routine in terms of yeah you could move position you could play one week not next week so yeah maybe it is maybe that's why he did move move about and Welcome back to the guest of photo part of the podcast. The answer was in the rugby photo is Johnny Wilkinson scoring a drop goal in the last minute of extra time to win the 2003 Rugby World Cup against Australia. Just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Matt. We really appreciate and enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Well, thank you and thanks for having me on and really, really enjoyed it and good luck for the next one and keep up the good work. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. Please follow us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of our episodes in full. If you are listening to this on your iPhone, can you please go and give us a rain and review it? It really helps to grow our show. Thank you and see you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.